You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Topco. Business Unusual. Can we kick off by asking you to briefly describe your journeys, Dr. Ruff and Dr. Subran, each, just so that we get an understanding of where you come from and what your passions are, what excites you about your careers? So, Sagan, you go first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, Fiona, please, Vasegan is my first name. So I, I started my journey in the healthcare sector as a, as a clinician, a dentist, okay. um, and, and uh, practiced for a very short while, mm-hmm. uh, but underst- understood that my impact in the health sector was fairly limited as a clinician. It was limited to the number, number of hours and the number of patients that could be seen in, 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 in practice. And uh, my interest was really in health systems as a, as a wider sort of area. And uh, I decided to study a little bit further commercial studies and um, then moved into the hospital management arena. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I started with the, one of the big three in the hospital uh, environment and then uh, worked as a hospital manager for a second of the sort of uh, three listed uh, hospital groups. Um, and then also realized that uh, in the healthcare sector, I was being managed or I was being um, evaluated based on the number of uh, patients I could put in hospital and, and, and obviously the revenue generated from those cases that required intense medical care. And for me, it was a little bit of a, of a um, contradiction of why I was in the sector and I was there to keep people well. And so that's a caused a little bit of internal tension. And uh, I realized that the primary healthcare space was really where one could make a difference. And um, a few years ago, about six years ago, I uh, met Brian, or at least I heard Brian presenting at the, the competition commission hearings that were taking place at that stage. And what he said and, and his um, vision for the healthcare sector really resonated with me. And we started a conversation and. Uh, a few years later, we, 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 yeah, we find ourselves together working on some exciting projects in this primary healthcare space. That's fantastic. Um, I, in one of my previous lives, I was a publisher um, and managed the healthcare list. So I've been like, very um, intimately involved and interested in the, the whole space of healthcare provision, particularly in, in South Africa. So I think what you're doing is amazing. And thank you for that brief overview of your journey. Um, Brian, can we go to you, please? Yes, <laughs> my, mine's a bit longer because I'm an old man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I studied medicine at, uh, at WITS um, and I worked in various hospitals in the Telspread on the East Rand uh, Hillbrow Hospital. And then I left the country because I didn't want to go to the army. And I worked in the UK NHS for 18 months or so. And then I came back and I worked at Alexandra Clinic in Alexandra Township. And then I decided to, another way of avoiding the army, I, I registered and became uh, a registrar in internal medicine. So I qualified as a physician. Um, and then I joined the rheumatology division. So I'm a I'm actually a subspecialist of a, a rheumatologist and a physician. But all of this was happening at the time of the transition, I guess, from apartheid to democracy. Um, and I've always been, I was always very involved politically. I was on the WITS SRC. Um, I come from a very political family. And um, um, I got very involved in healthcare politics. Uh, ultimately, during the transition, I was. Um, I was invited by Tom Bothwell, who was then the Dean 
of the medical school at Wits and who was part of the traditional transitional task team between the apartheid era and the, and the new um, dispensation. And so I stepped out of my rheumatology division at his invitation and helped him along with a fellow called Reg Brookman, who was then the superintendent of the Joburg Hospital. And I got involved in, in part of in that transitional arrangements. I learned how to analyze data. Do you remember Lotus one, two, three? And it was it was before before uh, you know the 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 uh, the mouse. So it was really <laughs> that primitive. And anyway, so I learned I learned how to to work uh, in a policy environment. I subsequently did a, a health economics uh, course through uh, UCT, which was very useful. Um, and then from that, I was offered a job in the Karting Health Department in the first Karting Health Department iteration by Eric Buch, who was then the one of the DDGs. And I worked there until. Um, I guess 98 odd, um, when it became impossible. Karting started becoming very racialized and very, you know, obviously the beginning of their very corrupt journey. Um, and I was l- lucky enough to do a brief stint in the National Treasury, focusing on healthcare. And then I got a job off at Discovery Health. And I worked at Discovery in charge of, uh, I guess, at various times called clinical risk management, strategic risk. It's Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Um, really doing data analysis, clinical data analysis, product development, reporting, etc. Um, ultimately, started getting involved on the supplier side, starting to do care coordination projects. Um, and at a certain point, it became obvious that we needed to get very involved, not just on the purchasing side, on the demand side, but on the supplier side. Actually, mm-hmm. organizing clinicians to stop working alone, get away from, you know, individual fee-for-service arrangements and start working multidisciplinary teams, global fees, value-based care outcomes. And Discovery said to me, yes, that's probably the right thing to do, but it's not the right thing for the business. So a couple of us, we resigned. um, And the the other founder of PPOServe is uh, Ridwan Jabbar, who unfortunately subsequently had to leave us because this journey is taking longer currently at Life Healthcare, but we started PPO Serve with the intent of taking the skills that we had developed over the years, um, understanding how to use your data, how to contract with schemes, how to design IT systems in order to enable, um, I guess, what is now the PPO Serve model. So that's the journey to where we are now. All right, that's wonderful. Thank you very much for that overview. Must be amazing to have that view, you know, of apartheid democracy and the kind of trends within the healthcare system and how they've changed so over the years. Um, yeah, so that's amazing. Thank you so much for that. Um, I read with interest the article in the Daily Maverick from June last year about how to harness the assets of private healthcare to respond to COVID-19. And now, a year and a half later, please let us know your thoughts on the subject, especially on the availability of hospital beds, because in that um, article you were writing about that we have more than enough hospital beds, but, you know, with COVID, um, it's, uh, I think it took a turn that nobody really expected. So could you just update us on your thoughts? Yeah, there was a subsequent article I wrote in the Business Day six months ago about the re-engineering the system using the primary care system to deliver vaccines rather than the you know corporate headquarters and garages in hospitals and ridiculous things like that. Yeah. Unfortunately, none of it's made the slightest bit of difference. Um, and we remain, it's been remarkable to me in the face of the crisis, mm. how the private sector is absolutely determined not to embrace any form of innovation. Mm. Um, and actually, uh, innovation, as far as there's an interesting article in the recent uh, BHF uh, magazine, innovation seems to be that the big corporates actually collaborate with each other, but that's innovation. So, actually, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, there's no, it's been remarkable how little change in the delivery model there has been. People would 
rather preserve their profit making, their, mm. their, 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 their economic structures and the dysfunction is much more important than actually yeah. using all of those bad profits. Um, and obviously COVID is an extraordinary, um, you know, insult on the system, if you see what I'm saying. Uh, you know, it, it really has had a major impact. But I would argue that we haven't used the beds that we do have properly, um, mm. largely because um, we have this system that care is still essentially delivered by doctors working alone. Um, yeah. And so beds is not the restriction in our system at all. The restriction in our system has been human resources. Mm. And the single big problem in our system is that if you compare us to other countries of a similar level of development, we have lots of specialists and lots of doctors, um, even lots of nurses, although mm -hmm. there's been a huge problem, as you may know, in this country with the training and retraining of nurses. So there is a real problem there. But what we don't do is we don't leverage those skills. Yeah. So instead of a kind of highly qualified specialist working with a whole lot of, you know, GP level medical officers and, and all kinds of other people, so that actually that skill goes for, you know, hundreds of people. What we mm. do is we let that highly qualified specialist work on their own. Yeah. Okay. And therefore the capacity of, mm. we have lots and lots of bodies and lots yeah. and lots of beds, but the real capacity of the system is enormously constrained by the, the really poor organization of the system. Yeah. Um, and except at the margins, I mean, there are, there are some really interesting stories. For example, I would argue the Islamic Medical Association, I'm not sure if you're aware of, has done extraordinary things um, all over the country and in their communities in particular, getting people working together, hiring people, offering services that didn't exist before. And they've done it on their own without a lot of support. And in some hospitals, I mean, I know, for example, um, NEFCA, as far as I know, did employ medical officers to work with some of the specialists. And people have tried to do things at the margin. But the central system of, you know, the doctor working on their own uh, has really been unchallenged. And I think yeah. what's most problematic for me, as I say, is that the, the general practitioner, the primary care level that Sagan was talking about, um, has played both in the, in, the, in the public sector and the private sector, um, has, has not been seen by the government as being the core of the response. Not to say GPs haven't been overwhelmed. They have been, but they've been overwhelmed working alone in their practices, sometimes seeing you know, up to four or 500 people with COVID a month. So they really worked hard, but they worked alone. Nobody has surrounded them with nurses, people going to visit people in their homes. No one's done anything extraordinary to support them. They've just worked much, much harder. And so, yeah, it's quite bizarre. We've had this terrible, terrible um, pandemic. Um, and yet the system has really failed as a system to, to respond to the crisis, except, as I say, for, you know, garages, you know, garages being turned into vaccination sites and, 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 and really... And we always do this in the system. We create these new silos to solve a crisis rather than saying, actually, how do we strengthen the core system in order mm. to respond to the crisis? So, yeah. yeah, I remain very disappointed. Yeah. No, I think uh, you're not alone in that. So thank you for that update. Basagin, um, would you say that you are an entrepreneur? would like to think I'm an entrepreneur, but I think the journey, <laughs> the journey, the journey is a, it's, it's a, it's a long one and, um, you know, it takes many twists and turns. Uh, but I think the entrepreneur mindset is important, even if you're working within an organization. And so at PPO Serve, I think we're very fortunate in that we have a, we have a very flat lateral structure and we don't function as a, as, as, as a, like a conventional organization. I think COVID has taught us that we work remotely and like we advocate the leverage of the specialist or, or the higher skilled resources, we try to do the same within our organization as well. Uh, and that's simply because in order for us to make an impact, we need our programs and our products to reach scale 
and that's both scale in terms of patient throughput, patient volumes, but also in terms of organizing these uh, clinicians that are in various uh, territories. And so that's our aspiration very much. So to answer your question, yes, I, I, do, I would, I'd like to consider myself an entrepreneur. And we, we, although we are, our journey is now six years uh, going, I think we have, um, we've just started. We've just started. Yes, and what an amazing journey it's been. I mean, we, you know, we're about to enter year three of COVID and you started three years prior to that, if not four. So there must have been many twists and turns and it really has required huge agility and us drawing on levels that we didn't even know we had to just keep going, you know. And I think what Brian was saying earlier about not thinking in silos and thinking communally is one of the things that's actually helped us get through uh, this really traumatic time of the pandemic. So thank you for that. Um, I just wanted to ask both of you what PPO stands for and could you describe its genesis uh, PPO serve and the problems it solves and the services it provides. So just a broad kind of overview of PPO serve. Throw that open. The second you have a go, should I? <laughs> over to you. You were there from the start. <laughs> okay. Um, so I guess we, we, we didn't, I mean, you're probably familiar with the concept of a managed care organization. Um, which in South Africa is slightly different from, I guess, its original genesis in the in the in the USA. Um, so, a managed care organisation in South Africa is a body that typically works for a medical scheme, um, and often the big um, third-party administrators, in addition to being administrators, also have a managed care license, um, and what they do is they focus on a particular disease, for example, or, or whatever it is, and then they try and get into arrangements on the supply side uh, in order to organize them into contracts or organizations in order to deliver a service better than normal. What we wanted to do was do something slightly different, which is to leave the purchaser side and to move on to the supply side. In other words, to say the real problem in South Africa is that there are all these doctors, there's something like, you know, depending on, 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 on how you look at 10 or 11,000 GPs and maybe five or 6,000 specialists, but they're all working on their own. Um, and they, there's nobody working on the private supply side for doctors who has the kind of policy knowledge, uh, as well as the contracting, as I mentioned, the analytics, the IT, who can help them move away from this model of working on their own in order to get into multidisciplinary teams where the skills can be leveraged. And so we determined to go and become a health management company working on the, uh, on the supply side um, and be, in a way, the agent of the doctors rather than the agent of the medical scheme. And so there are organizations, I guess, in... in on the supply side, like um, the Medical Association, SAMA, uh, which represents you know, lots of, um, of doctors in both the private and public sector. Uh, but it's not a commercial organization. It doesn't organize, you know, healthcare, as you know, is a, is a team sport done locally. Okay, so SAMA will have a national mandate. And similarly with the IPAs, the Independent Practitioner Association for GPs, they'll typically be representatives of you know regional groups of gps um, but they're not again they're not commercial organizations or they seldom are and so what they find themselves doing is they're in a position politically to defend their members against something that's you know a problem uh, a government the government or a medical scheme does something that they're unhappy about and they will organize people you know to defend against that but their ability to be proactive to get onto the front foot and put a different structure on the table, that's a commercial a job, and that takes all the kind of skills that, that nobody has. There is an organization called Health Man, 
A health man represents many of the specialists and some of the GPs, and their business model is to represent the doctors in their price negotiations uh, with the medical schemes, and they do that very well. But they, again, they work at a kind of industry level and a national level. So we thought there's a big gap, with, which is to someone to go in at a local level and get doctors working with allies and nurses, all working on a kind of very local level, creating these local multidisciplinary teams, and then get them contracted with medical schemes so that they can survive. Um, and also the important principle of value-based care. So value-based care means that you created this team, um, the team enrolls their own patients and any obviously any other patients who want to join, and the contract pays them for an episode of care or every month based on how many members are signed up and also how sick they are. And then there's also a big whack, maybe a quarter to a third of the total fee that's linked to your outcomes. In other words, how well are you doing for that population? So value-based care is very different from fee-for-service in that it doesn't, the more you do in fee-for-service, the more you get paid. In value-based care, the better the quality of the outcomes that you produce is what really matters. And the, the, how much service you do doesn't make any difference to what you earn. But because we're me measuring outcomes, if you under-service, you're going you're to lose out on, on good outcomes. So it balances value-based care in a way, it balances the interests of the, the patient and member, as well as the doctor to work with a bunch of like-minded colleagues, as well as the medical scheme to you know, get, get good value care. So that's what we did. We went and we positioned ourselves to work with on the supply side with doctors and other health professionals. Um, and uh, that's really our business model. Um, and that's been the journey. Now, no one's done that before in South Africa, really. There is an organization that does that for joint replacements, which is obviously, and they do it very well, uh, but it's a very, you know, it's one single, um, in, you know, one single endeavor, as it were, only around joint replacements. Um, although they've now gone into some other areas. We were trying to do it for what's called population medicine. In other words, if you manage a population uh, locally, 10,000, 15,000 people, could you improve at a primary care level their access to care, their navigation of the system, um, improve their outcomes, and in particular, reduce the need for being admitted? You know, we have this terrible system in South Africa, which because they're very poor out-of-hospital benefits, uh, and obviously as a consequence of that, there's very weak primary healthcare systems, everything gets done in a hospital. And every time you do something in a hospital that actually could be done in the doctor's rooms or at home in the community, it costs about 10 times more, which is why all our premiums are so high. So that's what we did. We positioned ourselves very much as working on the supply side with the clinicians um, rather than being a managed care organization. Yeah. And can I just add? Sorry, yes, was it again? Carry on. You, so the name PPO Serve represents yes. Professional Provider Organization Services, which was a clear oh, signal okay. that, that uh, our work was going to be on the supply side. But inevitably what we found is that <clears throat> whilst you can organize clinicians and maybe craft a model that will deliver better value, um, you certainly need the funder, and the funder could be the medical scheme, it could be an employee or uh, employer group, it could be the state, but the funding and the supply side does not have a framework in which to do the strategic purchasing function, um, and, that, and that, um, that relates to the state as well. There is an absence of a framework in which uh, organizations on the supply side could understand what the compliance requirements are, what the regulatory requirements are, what the essentially the contracting requirements are. And so we found ourselves not only now working on the supply side, but we certainly are the intermediary also working with the funder to craft, in the absence of this regulatory framework or any framework for that matter, having to craft those contracts. So inevitably our experience extends into that contracting environment as well, which is, I would say, non-ideal, 
because it does mean that you can't really focus on your business while you are uh, straddling um, that uh, environment. Okay, I understand. I just one question sprang to mind as I was listening um, to how PPO serve actually works and what it does. And um, when you're constructing these teams of professionals, do they all have to be in the same locale, or can you get if you're missing like a particular specialist or something? Can that person be brought into the team even though they're not in the particular geographical area and be like a consultant via the internet? Just asking if that's a possibility. That, that's a, isn't it? That a, that's a post-pandemic question. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I guess the answer two years on is slightly different. And I think the answer is probably to some extent. In, in other words, um, our model does rely on um, local relationships. Okay, so for example, uh, we have we at the moment we've got two products. We've had three. Um, we had one called the Birthing Team, which we've unfortunately now shut down. But the the primary care products do, um, in particular, the Value Care Team, which is our commercial um, product with medical schemes does rely on a local uh, team. And it, it, it needs that for a couple of reasons. So there will typically be, the core of it will be a bunch of GP practices in an area, but the area could be quite big. It could be, for example, we have one in the, in the north of Pretoria. And I guess from the one side to the other side is probably, I don't know, 15 kilometers. Um, but, and there are a couple of reasons for that. The one is that, First of all, the team as a group, so all these different general practitioners who don't have to kind of move, they stay in their practices, um, but they share a support structure which includes nurse care coordinators. So one of the problems, if you want to be proactive and the doctor's not going to shift away from their consulting room, you need somebody who's going to say, okay, there's a group of, you know, 5 or 10% of the population we looked at are really frail uh, or very complicated patients. And the nurse care coordinator becomes the person who does the home visits, who collects information, who helps them navigate the system, you know, goes and gets records from practices they've seen in the past, you know, goes with them to, you know, if they've got appointments, gets involved beyond the clinical in the social issues, gets the OT to come and evaluate the home and, you know, are there do we need a bar on the stairs to, you know, for support or whatever it is? So that nurse care coordinators become a team working together. So you can see that that also, and, and, and into that team, we bring various allied health professionals, as I've indicated, OTs and social workers and things like that. So that's the one reason why it's local, is that there's the shared team of people working together. And you can't really do that virtually because these are real people who have to sit together and make calls together and be organized, et cetera. The second reason is that one of the obligations of the general practitioners, and typically we do bring a physician in as well, is to sit around a table at least uh, once every two weeks. So they sit around together and they talk about certain, so the care coordinator or one of the GPs would have had a very complicated patient and that patient's been now worked up by the doctor working with the care coordinator. And together they present that patient to that forum. And everybody chips in. And sitting around the table will be, as I said, typically a physician, a bunch of GPs, a whole lot of allies, someone from essentially a hospice or a palliative care person, often people from the kind of subacute uh, facilities, etc., Sometimes people from various social support organizations all sitting around the table. Quite wonderful, actually, because, and they're all talking about this shared patient that they're concerned with. And so everybody shares their knowledge. And sometimes other doctors will say, oh, I, know, I know that family. I saw them 10 years ago, or whatever it is. And together, they kind of craft a care plan, which we then embed in our IT solution. And that patient will then be managed by the team. And then sometimes, um, reviewed again six months later, how's that patient doing, how's it going, et cetera, et cetera. So that 
forum, that multidisciplinary team forum, in addition to the day-to-day -day work with the care coordinators and everybody else, is really where you build trust and it's where you create relationships. And so it becomes, you're turning a bunch of strangers into good friends who work together and, you know, are happy to be part of a, a joint endeavor. And that's why it's local, I guess. On the other hand, having said that, um, we have a colleague, Dr. Belinda Richards, who's in Cape Town. And yet, because of her particular knowledge and, and because of language, she's now the person from PPO Serve who helps to convene those meetings. At the moment, those meetings are all virtual. We haven't had a real one since March 2020, which is a pity because actually you lose something. You don't know if people are on or if they're listening. You know, you just, it, it's hard to bring, there are care coordinators now working in the team who I've never met, you know, who it's all virtual. So you can do, to some extent, you can do it virtually, but actually, if you're going to create a kind of trusted team of people working and collaborating together, yeah, it is local. I think that sounds amazing. And it sounds like um, almost poignant in a way, because I think we really do miss that kind of community. Um, and I think Absolutely. that COVID has really highlighted that. Um, and that particular way of, a multidisciplinary team coming to care about a particular person really brings the heart into the service, um, the healthcare service. So I think that's a wonderful thing that you've described. Um, another question that I wanted to ask about this, um, you do mention primary healthcare. So does PPO serve, um, is it available in rural areas? So, you know, at the moment, we've done, as I say, we, we've, we've got two primary healthcare products that are happening at the moment. Um, and obviously, they're dependent, as Besagan said, on having a contract with the funder. Mm. So the project that Besagan runs specifically, which is called the GP Care Cell, um, which is an HIV screening and management project, has over has a contract essentially with a PEPFAR partner and with the Gauteng Health Department. So there have been projects in the Tswane district in Ikuruleni um, and now in the city of Johannesburg and City Bank. So the, where we go is to some extent depend, dependent on the funder rather than ourselves. So I guess those areas would have combined a mixture of metropolitan, urban, peri-urban, rural areas, um, you know, it depends on how you define the area. In And maybe Visagan can comment more on that. But in our project, in the, in the one that, that I'm very involved in, the Value Care Team, we've run projects historically. We had our first project was the funder was Discovery, um, although it didn't last very long and they didn't really come to the party at all. That was in Alberton. Um, mm -hmm. And now we're going back with the support of GEMS into, to start, restart that project in Elberton. But we're also adding on to that, um, Cato Rust, which is the huge black township next to Elberton, including Kaklahong, um, Tokoza and Fosleras. So in a way, um, why we targeted areas that were problems for medical schemes and the biggest problem for medical schemes, frankly, are the kind of elderly, mostly white pensioners who spend a lot of money. So we ended up in Elberton, but now um, with GEMS, as I said, we've had one in the north of Pretoria, and we're also now about to start one in Pretoria West, which will include Attridgeville and um, Lotus Gardens and areas around that. So we typically have focused on um, areas where there are a lot of people, you, you'll, you'll, you will understand that the project isn't viable if there aren't enough people who can be managed because the earning is a per person earning. So our focus has been on, uh, I guess, cities, and we're now starting to move into township areas. Um, to do it, I think, in deep rural areas would really require 
it would be fairly difficult and would require a much higher cost per person because of the lack of, of scale and, and the, the expense involved with doing that. So our focus hasn't been on, on rural. It is feasible, but it's probably more costly to do. Yeah, okay. So, Sagan, could you comment? Um, yes, I think the, the, the project which I lead is called the GP Care Cell in the city of Johannesburg. Some of the listeners may have been exposed to it as the Your Care Network, uh, and that's just a branding, a difference in branding. But essentially, it's a private-public partnership. It's a partnership with uh, with uh, with Pepper, the U.S. donor, uh, as well as the Gauteng Department of Health. And the Gauteng Department of Health makes available the medicines, as well that that, that being the antiretrovirals, as well as the test kits as well, uh, and in addition access to the National Health Laboratory Service for the blood tests. Uh, and as an organization, we're responsible for organizing this network of general practitioners. And we play that intermediary role where we have the approvals to move these commodities from the um, state depots into private GP practices. We have um, a basket or we have a mechanism in which we've uh, managed to solve all of the compliance issues so that the state plugs in at one end and has an intermediary which takes care of all of their requirements. And from the general practitioner side, they plug in on the other end and we've tried to reduce the admin burden for both parties. And so really we are, uh, we will go wherever we have approval to go. And our challenge has really been that pre-COVID, um, we had a lot of collaboration at a national and provincial level with the Department of Health. And unfortunately, the distraction, and rightfully so with COVID, has meant that the stewardship at a national level is just not there any longer. Although we've made remarkable strides in understanding how, um, how this purchasing function could happen and how we could organize private GPs in order to do business with the state um, fairly easily. So we would love to move into rural areas, especially because there isn't that large a footprint of public facilities, but you do find uh, GP clinics, large-scale clinics, which um, stand in their stead that deliver affordable services. And if we could solve the supply chain as we're doing now, we could so solve the monitoring and evaluation to make sure that there uh, isn't any fraud and abuse, etc., then certainly we can extend that that reach. Okay, that would be amazing. I mean, I just feel, you know, um, Brian was talking earlier about his um, the history and the struggle and apartheid and right. democracy. And I just feel, you know, rural areas, the service delivery hasn't changed particularly, despite our kind of, democracy trajectory and so I'm always hoping that there will be some kind of interventions that actually yeah. improves that. We so, were, and importantly, sorry. importantly, our model doesn't rely on huge capital investment and infrastructure. We're using resources that exist currently and so uh, the only spending is that on service delivery and re-engineering of the service and not putting in bricks and mortar and, and, and replicating costs which are already uh, or rather infrastructure which is available maybe not optimal but you've got to start somewhere and this is a rather, rather lower threshold in which uh, projects innovation projects can get a start we have been approached to get involved in a project in deep rural transcar um, oh. around a, a district hospital um, that wants to work in a much closer way, potentially as a kind of NHI um, demonstration project with the primary healthcare clinics, you know, probably 15 or 20 that drain to the hospital. And at the moment that it doesn't really have good, strong relationships with at all uh, mm -hmm. for, for various political and budget reasons. Yeah. Um, and I guess our solution, which we've put on the table, and we'll see if the if the if the people who um, approached us can find the funding was to say okay we've done this so we did do 
a project in Pretoria West with the University of Pretoria at their Dustport Clinic, in which we ran a multidisciplinary uh, team in their clinic. And we got the medical officer from the referral hospital, the local district hospital in Pretoria West, to attend those meetings. Um, and obviously that's, that doctor had never met anybody at that clinic. And suddenly they're sitting around the table talking about patients and, you know, suddenly the referrals make sense because they're understanding what the hospital can do and can't do. And the doctor is understanding what they can do. And now when they pick up a phone to have a chat, you know who you're talking to. So what we proposed in a way, and we did this project, and we made a huge dramatic uh, improvement in the life of a whole bunch of, of sick patients. So what we proposed in this deep um, rural Transkei area is that we could come in and we could, first of all, one of the biggest problems that happens in, in, in our public sector is that the wrong people are referred. So really sick people get stuck at the primary care and just don't get into the hospital system. And conversely, the hospital system gets filled with people who really should be treated in the community. And that mismatch creates a huge waste of resources. So our ability to go in, do a survey, understand the case mix, understand where it breaks down is obviously a big asset. And the second one is we'll teach you how to run a multidisciplinary team that crosses levels of care. And third of all, we'll deploy our IT solution, which means that we will have really good information on every patient who's come into the system, in particular on the very complex patients. And that information, our IT system is very deliberately de developed as a patient-centric system. So it doesn't matter if you've got permission as a clinician to work on that record. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in a primary care clinic or a hospital or a tertiary hospital, you're going to see the same record. Um, and so we said, you know, I'm not sure given the, deep, the problems in, in, the, in, in, the, in the kind of rural system around, do you have enough people and you know, is your pharmacy stocked with drugs? We can't solve those problems. But to the extent that your problems are an, a misallocation of resources against case mix, an absence of multidisciplinary teamwork across levels of care and IT solutions you know, that gives everybody a shared understanding of the patient, we can play a role. So we'll see. I think we could play a role um, in doing what we do, um, whether the, and, and certainly the, the fellow, the doctor who runs that hospital was very key. So I hope we'll get an opportunity to do it, but it does depend on whether, as I said, there's funding for the project. I look forward to hearing about that. <laughs> um, I'd like to ask you both, what have been your most memorable milestones? We can make it over the six years, so it's kind of uh, PPO serve um, related. So, um, Asagan, do you want Visigan? Do you want to start? I think a, a very significant milestone uh, was <clears throat> us being able to launch this PPP. It was almost uh, a year and a half in in, in gestation. Uh, and in that year and a half, it was a um, it was an idea that was born from a national HIV think tank, uh, and uh, the journey in order to get the requisite approvals from a national to a provincial level took 18 months of writing proposals, rewriting proposals, engaging in numerous consultations, in presenting the same information at various levels. Uh, and just the, the resilience and fortitude to get through that and eventually seeing the first patient on the program was, was significant for us as an organization, as a company. Um, and that was, back in, um, that was back in May 2018 uh, that started in the city of Swanee. And then slowly but surely a year later, uh, another significant milestone was then the, the, the kickoff in uh, the city of Ikuruleni, and that was in about April of 2019. Uh, sorry, April, yes, April 2019. And so with each new district, uh, for me personally, being intimately involved in, in, in that part of the business, in that product line, um, was 
was certainly the, the memorable milestones that, that jump out for me. That's wonderful. Thank you for that. And Brian, for you? Uh, I guess there have been a few. The one is, so we'd been in Alberton, you know, um, running that project with Dr. Audrey Koch and, and a whole bunch of GP practices. And, you know, we had a care, a care coordinators in, in an office and, and a PPO serve manager running the whole thing. And we finally got uh, the GEMS senior management interested. They finally decided we weren't a discovery uh, plot, <laughs> which took a very long time. And they came out, in fact, about nine people from GEMS came out, and they spent the afternoon in the office uh, with the care coordinators, listening to their stories about what they do, and then we went to the hospital where the MDT meeting was being held. And they sat in the background. The doctors all sat around a table with the allies and the nurses. And they did what they always do. They talked about patients. Um, and, they, and the GEMS people just listened. And then um, the MDT meeting ended. And we gave everybody pizzas and, and, and cold drinks. And then the, most of the clinical people left and we sat there with the GEMS people um, listening to their impressions. And so that took, that whole day took probably four or five hours. And uh, Guni Gulab, who was then the principal officer of GEMS, said to us, he said, look, it was an absolute privilege to sit in a room where a bunch of clinical people sat together talking about their shared patients. Mm -hmm. And from that, eventually, I mean, GEMS is not the fastest organization. <laughs> But they certainly are, they're certainly well-meaning and they're interested in their members and they get what we're doing. And we got a GEMS contract to carry on doing what we were doing. And that was probably three years ago. And we're sitting now waiting to hear the details. We've proposed now to a multi-year, multi-site contract with a lot of the learnings that we've had in Alberton and in Pretoria North, we built into this new contract. And um, my understanding is that they will sign it and there's just detailing. And so that's going to be the next biggie for us is to get to the next level because that will put us on the road to sustainability. It'll be, we'll be big enough and have enough people under management in order to, to keep us sustainable. So that's, that's the one that's what I'm waiting for, and you know, I think that's literally going to happen in, in, in the next few days. The other one is that we have spent, we started developing our IT solution literally in September 2015. We eventually, we looked, Redwan and myself, we looked around the world for a patient-centric, proactive healthcare solution that hosted clinical data and care plans for a team for pay, we didn't find one. So eventually, um, six months later, we, 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 we developed a relationship with a, an IT development company called Stone3 down in Somerset West. And we have now spent over six years developing our IT solution. Um, wow. IT solution, yeah. First, the first one we developed in any great detail was for the birthing team. Mm -hmm. And then we developed one for the GP care cell. And now we've developed one for the value care team. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, a, it's really useful and obviously crucial for the work that we do. But at, about six months ago, we decided that we needed, people have been knocking on the door and saying, can we use your system? Mm -hmm. And we've said, we love you too. And then they look at it and they say, yes, but it's not quite enterprise level yet. And it isn't. It's, you know, it was built as an internal tool. So we started looking for a digital a partner, someone with whom we could commercialize this and who also would, you know, with us, basically, they would become the developer and not just commercialize it, but also all the bells and whistles that we haven't particularly, because our business is very incremental. So, you know, you, you, you do things because you're a small starter. You do everything incrementally. Uh, and so right, right now we're at the point of, having an engagement with a number of potential partners and the who are all quite serious about becoming our digital partner. And so the, the next biggie, I think, which will happen in the next month or so, 
will be the appointment of a digital partner um, to hold our hand as we go forward. So, yeah, those three things, I think, are really the big kind of um, um, landmark things that occur to me. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. That's all exciting because it's not just what's happened, but it's feeding into the future. So they're all exciting. And uh, fingers crossed for the next couple of days for your contract. Um, So just to ask you both, what would be your three greatest wishes for the healthcare system in South Africa? Because again, do you want to go first? Yeah. Well, I think for me, it would be having a clear direction in terms of how the how do organizations who are serious about playing in this primary healthcare space, how do they organize themselves? How do they think about their business model in order to try and um, effect meaningful change on the primary healthcare side working? with clinicians because currently there's just an absence of this framework. I mean, in 2011 or so, I think it was, there was, uh, you know, the first uh, published paper on what uh, a national health insurance might look like. And there was some funding made available and that funding, you know, went into it. It it didn't test the right things. It didn't test the right institutions and the the right constructs that could enable any type of um, sort of purchasing from the state. And so we, in our work, find that we have innovations and ideas and there's just nobody, there's nobody to consult. There isn't any forum in which you could go to. There isn't any evaluation of what we're doing. And so we work in the dark and we pioneering and pushing on. It would just, my wish is that, that we would take this a bit more seriously and there would be a formal structure in which uh, everybody has an equal opportunity in which to present what they are doing and what their ideas are and if it is commercially viable then they're given a chance to pursue it um, I think that that is really the, my big ask um, and uh, secondly I think um, we have um, we probably have some constraints yet again in terms of clinicians working together as teams uh, in that the HPCSA has guidelines which prevent uh, clinicians from getting into uh, teams and making it easy for them to be paid for their services. We've circumvented that with some fancy contracting, but it's still not ideal. So it would be that, you know, the HPCSA, I think, uh, starts putting their money where their mouth is as well in terms of multidisciplinary teamwork. And, um, yeah, let me pause there and give Brian an opportunity and then maybe I can think about the third one while he's talking. Can I just do a quick comment on the first one as you were speaking? I was thinking it's almost like you were saying working in the dark and, you you know, you've got all these ideas. Um, so for me, it almost sounded like you needed to take your concept of PPO serve and it needs to be like at a national level where it's where the people like yourselves can present to other people like your ideas and that then kind of funding happens, you know, so you're doing like your own business and you have that as a model, but it would be a great model kind of as a national thing where you don't have to work on your own. You know, you can join forces Mm -hmm. with like-minded people. That just popped into my head. (laughs) Um, Brian. Yeah. That collaboration. Yes. Yeah. that collaboration is what's uh, needed because there's, there's, there's South Africa, I mean, you've got a population of 50 plus million. And so there's a lot of work that needs to happen on the, and on the ground. And we've rolled up our sleeves. And remember, we have consulted at a national level in order to have the approval just to move state commodities requires a lot of hurdles that we've had to um, overcome and a lot, lot, of, lot of issues, governance issues that we've had to solve. But in solving this, in doing the work and having a platform that's built over six years in order to enable this, we can't leverage that. Um, and so that's the challenge. All right. Thank you. Um, Brian, do you want to go with your three? 
Uh, yeah, and I, I guess anybody who heard me presenting at the health market inquiry will know my answers to this. <laughs> um, the first one is that I think as I probably has become clear to you in the course of this discussion, um, the way you purchase, the way you fund is really absolutely crucial in the health sector. Health, health is not a normal consumer good. Um, it does, people don't put money in their pocket and go and buy a you know 10 day stay in hospital. It's just not possible. Um, and the reason for that is really two things. The one is it's just too expensive. And the second one is that you don't have the information. The person who's giving you the information, namely the doctor, is also the person who's going to be gaining from the income. So there's an asymmetry of information. And so in the, because of both of those reasons, healthcare is just not a normal market. And so the way that you create, because, you know, basically, I guess, one does have a belief that market forces are important, um, you do want, and the way the WHO recommends, and I think most countries that have good, good health systems have moved in this direction, you want a formal group, a purchaser or a group of purchasers who really know what they're doing, working on behalf of the population. Okay. We don't have that. Okay. What we have in the public sector is a system in which there's no separation between the fund holder and the delivery system. It's a budget system. And if everybody runs out of money in September, bad luck. You know, you just don't do any work for the rest of the year. And that's in a way where the NHI, in theory, comes from. It's the separation of the purchaser from the provider function. On the private sector, we certainly don't have that because of monopolies. And so my first real wish is what we said at the HMI, which is, I mean, I don't know if you were close to this, but in the draft report of the health market inquiry, they were intending to cap on the supply side the major hospital groups. They were basically going to say Nobody, no one group may have more than 20% of the beds in the country because otherwise you become. At the moment, we have a situation where there are three groups. One group has almost 40% of the beds, one has around 30%, and one has about 25%. And the result is that there's just no competition. They've basically carved up the model. And so the, 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 the health market inquiry was going to basically restrict that by breaking them up. Our recommendation, as you know, it never happened because in the final report, they, they, they ran out of courage. Our recommendation was that, first of all, we like the 20% nationally, but because we recognize healthcare is regional, we also said nobody should have more than 30% region because no point in having, you know, you could have many hospital groups that have 80% of their region and therefore you've got no competition anyway. So we said 20% nationally, 30% regionally. And we said the same constraints, this 20%, 30%, should also apply to the medical scheme administrators. Okay. So the implication would be you would break up discovery, you would break up med scheme, um, you would break up the big three hospital groups, and you would have real market forces working at a local level. Okay. So that's my wish number one. If we're going to rely... If we're not going to have a centrally funded system like the NHS in the UK, then at least let's have a functional market, which God knows we don't have at the moment. So that's, I guess, my one. Um, the second, I guess, it also comes from the health market inquiry. They did recommend a supply side regulator. Okay. So at the, on the one hand, we're saying the purchases are dysfunctional. Um, let's make them functional by breaking them up. I guess the subsidiary point of that would be the, there is on, in the private sector, as you know, a regulator for the, the, the medical schemes and administrators called the Council of Medical Scheme. Unfortunately, they're missing in action. So, yeah, if they understood the importance of the funders doing, actually doing funding rather than simply buying up assets on the supply side, which really, if you think about it, if this is a purchaser-provider arrangement, really just undermines the whole arrangement. So the second was there was a recommendation on the supply side. At the moment, there is no, you know, the Health Professional Council basically accredits you to work as a doctor or not, okay? Um, there is no supply side organization that basically says we understand competition and we understand quality of care 
and we're measuring what's happening in the environment and we're making regulation and we're changing the law in order to make sure that um, that, that the protection for patients who go into hospitals isn't purely professional accreditation, but actually an explicit quality measurement system that finds and solves problems. We don't have that. So a supply side regulator with real teeth would be really enormously uh, valuable for us. And the third one, I think, sits somewhere in between, which is let's get rid of fee-for-service. Fee-for-service has nothing good about it. What it does is, first of all, the biggest problem is that it pays people to work alone, which, as, as we've discussed, prevents multidisciplinary teamwork. Um, and the second thing, obviously, is it pays people to do lots of services, regardless of whether it's needed and regardless of the outcomes. So moving to a value-based care framework, which says we pay teams of people to work together, but a big whack of their income is determined by how good their outcomes are, as reviewed every six months or so. Um, we just concentrate everybody on continuous improvement. So I guess those would be my... None of these are rocket scientists, <laughs> but gee, gee, we feel very far away from them at the moment. Thank you so much. Um... Sagan, have you got your third one? Yeah, the third, which I slipped my mind, was currently um, currently in the private sector, um, an organization is not allowed to employ doctors unless they have some specific dispensation where they are an NGO uh, that's working uh, as a district support partner or there are some other concessions, but hospitals, private hospitals are not allowed to employ doctors, specialists in particular. And from the time that I've spent in that environment, I've noted that it's incredibly difficult as a, as a hospital administrator to try and get specialists to work in a very coordinated manner. And it comes back to the same issue of being aligned and teamwork. The hospital is very much a service provider, not only to the patient, but also to the specialist. And I think what happens inevitably is the specialist has the clinical autonomy, autonomy, which should be respected. But certainly if the hospital tries to in any way contain costs, your hands are tied, limited to what the hospital has control of, which is just supplying the care. In no way are you able to benchmark um, the treatment given to a specific patient. So that episode of care versus other patients in your hospital and their episode of care or hospitals across um, hospitals in the same region for that matter. And in so that way, there isn't this overall, I guess, containment of costs on the, on the provider side because the hospital is seen as a separate entity from the specialist. I think if the hospitals are allowed to employ specialists, of course, you'll get specialists that will still want to remain fairly independent. But I, I do believe that there's a subset of, subset of specialists that don't want to be in the open market consulting for, or in competition for patients. They would much rather prefer the security of working with the environment with a team of nurses and administrators where they play the clinical lead role and together are responsible for the care of patients. And I think that would be a significant cost driver in the tertiary healthcare space. Thank you so much. Well, I can't... Rather. But the... The hour's flown by. I mean, it's just been such a fascinating conversation. Um, can I just end off by asking you both, would you like to send a message to all our listeners out there as we enter year three of the pandemic? I think if I were to go, I think there, there is still a lot of uncertainty around, um, obviously, topic. the topical issue is vaccinations. But I think we need, you know, we rely on a community in order to, protect everybody and I think the only way that we can do it is if we all um, play our part and I think there isn't any there's not much room for individualism here and uh, choice I think we need to understand that we all in it together and uh, sometimes we've just got to reserve that independence of thought for I guess issues that are beyond the healthcare space where there's some clear-cut evidence to the contrary. All right. Thank you very much for that. And Brian, over to you, the final word. Yeah, I, I guess the, you know, just to kind of uh, 
in a way, repeat what Versagan said. Um, the, this, the, the pandemic and the virus is really showing, you know, as, as humans, um, we're stronger when we're in a society together. A society is not just a collection of individuals all doing whatever they want. A society is a group of individuals who understand that working together, we're stronger than we are apart. And so that solidarity, which we seem to have lost, not just in South Africa, but around the world, is so important. And the pandemic really shows that up. So supporting each other um, and using the structures, um, understanding that when you get vaccinated or not vaccinated, it's not just about you. It's yeah. about everybody that, you know, who lives in the community that you live in. Um, and that that's so important. So yeah, do it. Do what you can do. Take take responsibility and uh, go out there and get whatever vaccines are offered to you. That's wonderful. Thank you both so much for your time. As I said, it's flown by, and I really wish you all the best. And hopefully, we can catch up sometime next year, and you can update me on the progress. So take care, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you too. A pleasure. Thank, Thank you, Fiona. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.